uh, I'll invite you to turn with me this morning to Mark 14. Mark 14. We're going to begin reading in verses 43 and in verse 43 and read down through verse 52. This is a, a sobering account that we have before us this morning. Uh, but I have confidence that there are some important and some good, good and right things that we can glean from it uh, and, and, and maybe even learn something, some things new about this, that, this story, this passage, this account that we've never learned before. Mark 14, beginning in verse 43, we'll read down through verse 52. This is the story of uh, Christ being apprehended in the garden and Judas betraying him over to the hands of the religious leaders. Before we look at it together, let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminders of our humility and our creatureliness, um, our imperfections. God, thank you that where we are weak, you are strong, and that you work in and through us for the sake of your kingdom and the gospel in spite of, uh, in spite of us and our imperfections. And so, Father, I pray this morning that in spite of me, you would speak to these people, that you would speak even to my heart, you would teach us the gospel in this text, that you would help us and encourage us and enable us to wholly depend upon Christ for his righteousness. Father, open our hearts and our minds, our eyes to the word of God that is before us. Illuminate us to the truth that is here, that we might understand and be redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. It says, And immediately while he was still speaking... Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one who I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Okay. Uh, this text, and we're just going to dive right in because we're going to try to conserve time as we look to the Lord's table in a few moments. But this text, I think, is maybe best understood to be a text about comparison and contrast. I think at the center of this text is Judas, the character, the betrayer, the one who is committing this egregious sin and transgression against his, his master, his Lord Jesus. This is Judas, one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples who has walked and talked with Christ, uh, who has been included in his most intimate dealings and has been a part of his most intimate companionship. And it is this same Judas that then leads the elders and the scribes and the chief priests and the religious leaders and those that would seek to destroy Christ and his ministry and tear down his authority. It is this Judas that leads them to him. But it is also in this text, I believe, this Judas that is to be considered insofar as he is compared or contrasted to the other characters in this account. We have Judas 
and his comparison to the disciples. For while Judas has an obvious sort of blunder, and it's far worse than that, it's an obvious, uh, it's an obvious expression of his lack of faith and his disgenuine or ingenuine belief in Jesus, that he is really an apostate, that, that, that he is not a follower of Christ, though he claims to be and though he sort of looks like one on the outside. But it's also, it's not only Judas, it's also the disciples. They're not having a very good day in this story, are they? We, we turn to the end and we'll get there in a few moments, but it says that they all left him and fled in verse 50. That's all the rest of the disciples. But what we know is that Judas is never restored. And as the text goes on, if you know anything about this story, we know that Judas is never restored, that he dies in his unregenerate state, that he is not a believer by grace through faith in Christ, that he dies in his state of unbelief, yet the disciples who equally and, 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 and on the same night are having a tough time with their faith and with their obedience, they're not having the best night either, but these are the same men who moving forward, they are restored and they are reconciled. And in fact, they become the men upon whom Christ will build his church and will send his word. So what's the difference? And, 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 and why are they different? Then there's also Judas and Jesus. Could there be any more stark of a comparison between the utter wickedness of Judas in this text and his willingness to betray Christ for such a small sum of money to give in to his worldly desires and his sinful flesh and and to follow the lusts of his heart? Is there any greater comparison between his wickedness and transgression and the absolute utter righteousness of Jesus who is standing in the face of his accusers and of his oppressors and is loving them and is not striking back at them and is even restoring them? I think the comparison between the contrast between Judas and Jesus is striking. And then I think maybe to some other degree, more specifically of the disciples, there's a little bit of a comparison between Judas and Peter where Judas leads a crowd with clubs and swords to bring violence against Jesus. Peter is there in the garden, angered because of what's happening, and he draws his sword. We know that it's Peter from other gospel accounts of this story. Peter draws his sword in defense of Jesus. So I think there are maybe some things we can learn there. Here's here's what we're going to do. The question is, as we look at the different characters involved in this story, and as we think about kind of comparing and contrasting them together, what do we learn about these comparisons? What do we learn about looking at Judas in light of the disciples and specifically Peter and his actions and what they were doing there and the failure of the disciples over against the failure of Judas, and then also Judas and his wickedness compared to the righteousness of Jesus? What do we learn from these comparisons? I have four practical and theological assertions or applications, I believe, of this text. And that's what I want us to work through together. So here we go. Number one, I think one of the things we must learn from this is that it is possible to be a professing follower of Christ and to be deceiving everybody, including yourself. It is possible to be a professing believer in God. I ask people all the time, are you a Christian? I asked a young lady at my door this week, are you a Christian? She came to sell me something. I had to listen. So I figured she could listen to me for a minute. I said, are you a Christian? Thankfully, she was. And she said that she knew the Lord and she seemed to know something of the gospel. But when I ask people all the time if they're a Christian, I may have asked some of you that. One of the main answers that I get is, well, I mean, I believe in God. 
Or maybe I believe in Jesus. Well, friends, the New Testament teaches us that even the demons believe and they tremble. Yet their belief is not unto salvation. It is possible, as we see with Judas, unlike the disciples, and part of that is because we know what comes after the story. We know the, the tragedy in Judas's life and the way that he comes to his death so despondent and hopeless because he is apart from Christ and not believing in him. Judas knew all about Jesus. He walked and talked with Jesus. He believed that Jesus was. He even believed, I think, in the God that Jesus served. He would not have denied any of the truths that they would have been preaching. He was even a part of their preaching and ministry uh, in the streets of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. But as we see with Judas, who looked for all intents and purposes to the world to be a Christian, he was a part of the Christian group. He followed the Christian Savior and leader and king. He knew the Christian answers. He could explain to you where Christ had been and what he had been doing. He knew everything there was to know in his head, but something was amiss. Because he is proving himself by his actions here and those that will follow. Unlike the disciples, who are yet sinners as we will see, he is proving himself to be an unbeliever. So that he believes with his head in God, he knows with his head and even with his experiential knowledge, the reality of his life, that Christ was, that he taught, that he went and he did, he saw the miracles, but somewhere there was a disconnect in his heart that he did not truly believe. And so, friends, it is, it is good for us to look and to listen at the testimony of Judas and to understand, first, that we can look as much like the church and other Christians and even like Christ on the outside to everybody looking in and still yet be deceived and be deceiving about our relationship with Jesus. Guys, that's a terrifying reality. I think in part this story is to scare us. Don't you remember that Jesus just a couple of weeks ago, as he meets with his disciples in that upper room to celebrate the Lord's Supper with them, and he tells them, one of you will betray me. And he lets them sort of squirm, if you will, and think, was it me? I would never do that. I would never do that. Judas, knowing all the while that he was working that plan and bringing it to be. Friends, it is, it is a terrifying reality to know that you can have a head that is full of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus. You can even have a life that is full of the doings. The, the doings of the good things and the not doing of the bad things. The, the involvement in the church and the service on that committee or the playing of that instrument. The, the faithfulness in worship. Now, let, let me say that those things in our life are also... For those who are genuine believers in Christ, they are to encourage us that we know him. Those are good things. But friends, it's possible to be doing all of those things for the wrong reasons. To be being good to your neighbor and loving your enemy and doing right to all people because you think it's the way that you're going to earn your place before God. And when I stand before God, well, I, I hope he thinks I'm good enough. You can, live a, you can live a good life. You can be a moral person. Even farther like Judas, you can be in the innermost circles of the Christian church and you can be so far from Jesus that you are ever in danger of being plunged into the fires of hell and judgment. It's a, it's a, it's a terrifying reality that we see in Judas. 
be very careful. Be very careful in your theology of Judas as well, that you do not espouse a view that he once was a believer in Jesus, that he had been genuinely converted, redeemed, regenerated by God, reconciled with him, forgiven of his sin, that he had entered into a faith-based relationship by God's grace with Jesus and is now falling away from that. That is not the case. He never knew him. As Jesus will declare on that great day when he returns to all of those, even those in the church that look like Christians but are full of hypocrisy. Jesus will declare, depart from me, you that worketh iniquity, for I never knew you. Not I know you no longer. So that the so that ultimately our life and our heart, it will find us out and it will prove us to be what we are. The fruit of your heart and the fruit of your life, it will expose you to be a certain type of tree. The fruit doesn't make you the tree that you are. And so with Judas, he knew the answers. He begrudgingly did certain things, I would imagine, but he did not know Christ. Now, let me say this as well, another caution. As we learn from the, as we learn from the tragedy and the sin of Judas, I agree with those pastors and theologians that see the sin of Judas as a slow-growing cancer. Here's what's so scary about Judas's life. I think if you had asked Judas months and months and months ago, before, before this happened, would he sell Christ and betray him for this amount to the religious leaders? I think he would have told you, I never would do that. I would never do that. I don't, I don't think Judas always intended to be a betrayer and always intended to be this guy. The problem was he could not escape the reality of his heart. And the reality of his heart is, is, is that it had never been changed. He was trying to work to be better, but no matter how much better you become, if you were still doing better things from a corrupted heart, ultimately the better will stop and the corruption will come through. It's like rust. It eats away and it cannot be patched. It cannot be hidden. Ultimately, it will be exposed. I think that's the case with Judas. But let this be a lesson to us, friends. Sin is very, very dangerous. And it will destroy you. God declares in Genesis, the very beginning of time, after he creates Adam and Eve and puts them in the garden, and he gives them a law to keep. And when they disobey, he says, because you have disobeyed, death has now come. That is all-encompassing death, decay, deterioration of body, mind, and soul, and of the creation at large. Trees die because of sin. Animals die because of sin. And friends, we will die because of sin, but not just physically, also spiritually. And it always begins with a little bit. And, and, and ultimately, that sin progresses and progresses and progresses. If you, turn to Psalm, if you turn to Psalm 1, you don't have to turn there now, but I'd encourage you to look. You see the progression of sin. Where the man who is, you know, walking with the sinner and with the unrighteous. Then in the next verse, he is stopped and he's standing with the sinner and conversing with him. And before he knows it, in Psalm chapter 1, he's at the home of the wicked, seated at their table dining with them. There is this slow progression to sin in our life. But so also there is a progression of righteousness for those that believe and know him. Our lives are not characterized by slow progression and deterioration into sin. They are characterized unlike Judas, but like the disciples, and this is where the comparison comes in, by, yes, failure and sin, but a slow progression in righteousness, where we are slowly 
moving in the other direction, becoming more like Christ, coming to know him better, being removed from our transgressions even farther. That's where the disciples are, and we'll see that. Because as you move forward from this story, the disciples are sorrowful about their sin. They are repentant of their desertion of Jesus, and they are restored in their relationship with him, so much so that they are invited by the Holy Spirit and used by God to build the initial church, to propagate the gospel to the nations, and to author most of the New Testament, these 11 deserters. Not so with Judas. In Psalm 1, right after the progression of sin is seen, the progression of righteousness, it says, But blessed is the man who is like a tree planted by the rivers of living water, whose roots grow deep, and is fed by that stream, and he gives forth fruit in his season, and in everything he does he prospers. There is this progression toward righteousness. I would encourage you to examine Psalm 1 there. So I think, it's, I think it's wise and good for us to look at the example of Judas in considering how he compares to the other disciples, that he is proving himself to be an unbeliever by his actions here. Can you imagine how greedy he must have been? We know that he had been dipping his hand into the money, that the disciple, the money bag, for some time. We're told that elsewhere in the New Testament. We've seen that even in Mark. And I think his sin progressed until now for 30 pieces of silver. He sells Jesus to the enemy. It's unbelievable. It's a dark, dark testimony. Secondly, first, it's possible for us to be professing followers of Christ but to, and to be, deceive, to be deceived ourselves and to be deceiving everybody else. You cannot deceive God. Secondly, the kingdom of God about which Jesus has so often taught in this gospel is not built like the kingdoms of the world. It is altogether different, and so too are its inhabitants. It is altogether different, and so too are its inhabitants. This is a story about the kingdom of God and the way that it comes. We know that because when you go to John 18, if you were to turn over there to John 18, this, it's the same place in the story of the life of Jesus that we're dealing with here. And listen to what it says immediately following the story of Judas betraying Jesus in the garden. In John 18, here's what it says. Beginning of verse 33, when Pilate is questioning Jesus, who has been taken into custody and he's asking him if he is a king, are you the king of the Jews? And he's asking him about the nature of his kingdom. In verse 36, Jesus responds to him about the nature of his kingdom in this way. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. What, what did he mean my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been handed over? He means they would have been armed and fighting in the garden when they came to, to arrest him. This is very interesting. Look at what it says back in Mark in our text here, chapter 14, verse 33. I'm sorry, verse, the very first verse, verse 43, not 33. It says, while they were still speaking, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came with a crowd with swords and clubs from the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The question is, why did the religious leaders in the opposition to Jesus come with swords and clubs? Because they saw Jesus as a revolutionary, as the king of a kingdom, rightfully so. But the kingdoms of the world are built through the sword. And they expected upheaval and violence, and they expected Jesus and his followers to fight for their kingdom. 
Judas expected. Notice that Judas is who has given them the information that they're operating on. They come expecting a fight, and they do not really get a fight. Peter, in a moment of weakness, draws his sword, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But even even in the damage he does in one swipe, Jesus restores the enemy by putting his ear back on. Judas doesn't get it. And neither do the religious leaders. What is it that he does not get? He does not get that Jesus is a king, but you remember Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 2, way back in the life of our church, it seems like now, and of these, this series of sermons, he is a king, but he's a different kind of king. He is not a king like the kings of the world, and his kingdom is not a kingdom like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of the world are advanced with the sword. The kingdoms of this world place a high value on power, success, and self-preservation. But Jesus' kingdom is different. It's a kingdom where the weak and the lowly are rewarded. It's a kingdom where the last are first. And those who deny themselves and suffer great loss are one day and ultimately exalted. It's a kingdom where loving your enemy is better than cursing him. Where the suffering of the cross brings more glory than the prestige of the crown. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of Jesus. That is what is evident in this text. Judas was not a member of the kingdom because he did not understand the nature of the kingdom. He didn't get it. He thought the kingdom of God was just like the kingdom of the world and that it was all about power and success and that it was to be advanced with the sword and with opposition and with bloodshed. And so they come to do away with that kingdom based on Judas Judas. Uh, inclinations and on the information he had given them. And they bring their swords and their clubs and they find Jesus willing to lay down his life to be the king of his kingdom. Willful to go with them because as he says, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Do you see how different this is? The kingdom of God is totally unlike the kingdoms of the world. J.C. Ryle said about this, listen, the cause of truth, being the kingdom of God, does not need force to maintain it. False religions like Islam have often been spread by the sword. Even false Christianity like that of the Roman church has often too been enforced on people by bloody persecutions. But the real gospel of Christ requires no such aid as these. It stands by the power of the Holy Spirit. It grows by the hidden influence of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts and consciences. There is no clearer sign of a bad cause in religion than a readiness to appeal to the sword. Remember the words of Matthew, do you not? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, didn't he? For they shall be called the sons of God. Do you see that it is the peacemakers? It is the upside down, it is the upside down wisdom of the gospel. It, it is the upside down wisdom of God's kingdom. That, that as Jesus taught just a few chapters ago, for us even in this context, that he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who is willing to lose his life for my sake will save it. That suffering is the way to glory. That the cross is the way to the crown that is modeled for us by the king of the kingdom in Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the inhabitants of the kingdom. They are the sons of God, exclusively and explicitly. Judas was not one of them. 
the disciples were. Remember that Jesus is not a king with a scepter. He does not ride on, at least when he came, he did not come riding on a white horse, but on a donkey. He rules not by taking power, but by giving it up. He gave himself up for others, and he declares that in his kingdom, those who seek to save their life will lose it. He came to bring peace. Peace between sinners and the righteous judge of their sin. It's the, it's the kingdom of God. And it's what Judas did not understand. And it's what he's trying to communicate to us today. Thirdly, not only Judas, not only can professing Christians, those who look like Christians, be deceiving themselves and be really lost. Thirdly, even genuine believers who are trusting in Christ by grace through faith, they are prone to stumble and sin when their faith is tested. Friends, I'm really encouraged by the disciples here. I don't know if it's because misery likes company or because they make me feel like I'm not such a failure. Friends, be encouraged. When the heat was ramped up by the wickedness against Jesus, after Judas comes in, he kisses him, they lay hands on him, they seize him, they understand that they are in utter peril, that their life is in danger, and Jesus has willfully, their leader, he has not fought, he has willfully given himself up. He has corrected Peter, who fought for him and given the ear back to the guy who Peter was trying to kill that was trying to take Jesus. They are terrified for their life and their faith is being tested, maybe like it's never been tested before. And in a moment of sin and weakness, the disciples are gone. But unlike Judas, they are true disciples. They love Christ. They've committed their life to him. They have entered into a faith relationship with him by God's grace. They've been restored and reconciled. Their hearts have been made new. They've been regenerated. They're in a relationship with him. But yet they run. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Then in verses 51 and 52, you see that there's this other young guy. We'll talk about him in a moment. But there's this other young fella, and he is so scared. The cloth that he's wearing gets yanked off his body, and he continues to, he is out of there, naked. It does not matter. He's, he's hightailing it. He's gone. I think part of that is to help us understand the great peril that the disciples who were there were in. Friends, be encouraged. Not as an excuse for your sin, but at least as an encouragement that even genuine believers in Christ are prone to stumble. What is the difference between these men and Judas? Well, we know from the rest of the story, so to speak, and from the texts beyond this point, from the life that they led, that they were characterized by repentance. Peter weeps. Peter weeps over his sin. Judas did no such thing. And it is because of their repentance that Jesus restores them and that God ordains them to be the blocks upon which his church will be built. And then he uses these 11 deserters, these 11 sinners who stumbled when their faith was tested he uses them to author much of the New Testament. Two lessons, and we'll quickly move to the last point. Two lessons from, I think, their stumbling and their failure that we need to learn as Christians. Those who believe in Christ have entered into a relationship with him. First of all, clothe yourself with humility. For you never know what you will do when you are tempted. Clothe yourself in humility. You never know what you would do if Jesus would allow you to be tempted in different ways.
Friends, I have often said to people, some of men and from Bible study, some of you can attest to this reality, that I'm so glad I was not in God's providence, tall, dark, and handsome, 6'2", athletic, rich, famous. I, I, you know why? I'm none of those things. I don't have a lot of money. I'm not much to look at. And, and what I know is that I, a lot of the sin that would have been afforded me and would have been thrown before me had I been, in God's providence, rich and famous and beautiful. I, I know the depth of the depravity of my own heart, and I, I probably would have done all of it. But God hasn't even allowed me to be tempted in that way. Let, lest, I, lest I think I'm so good because I'm not doing what those people are doing. I'm not, you know, I've never had women flinging their self at my feet. Guys, I'm I'm thankful in God's providence that that's the case because I doubt that I'd be standing here. When when the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus prayed, do you remember what he said? That, That we still pray today. We ask God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, to keep us from temptation. Why? Because, friends, if we are honest about the depth of sin and wickedness in our own hearts, we must confess that if God would allow us to be tempted and let us be led into temptation, we would fail all the more. And so we plead with God, lead us not into temptation, but protect us and deliver us from evil and from the evil one. So clothe yourself with humility, for pride comes before a fall. Secondly, be patient with other Christians. Do not expect too much of them. You know who the biggest sinner you know is? The biggest sinner, you can, the most wicked person you can think of. It's you. It ought to be. You know more about the depth of the depravity in your own heart and in your own mind than you do about anybody else. Friends, when you look at other Christians who have fallen and stumbled into sin who are dealing with some issue, do, do not look down on them, For but for God's grace, you would be in the same situation they are in. You would be falling into the same sin that they are in. Be patient with them. Do not expect too much of them. And most of all, friends, in our patience with them, pray for them, that they would be brought to repentance and that they would ultimately be reconciled and used by God as were these discerning disciples. So even genuine believers are prone to stumble when their faith is tested and fall into sin. And then fourthly and finally, I hope, I hope we have time for this. Fourthly, what men are unable to accomplish in the garden, Jesus accomplishes completely. Stay with me. I agree with Tim Keller and with other commentators who see this garden story as a parallel passage to Adam and Eve's experience in the garden. I think it's really helpful, and I think it's really insightful. So let's walk through it together. It is in some ways fitting that we are back in a garden where Jesus is at a place of intimate communion with God, depending upon him and relating to him in this most intimate fashion. It's appropriate that the setting is a garden. Was it not in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve walked and talked with God more intimately than has ever been known probably by men since the time. It was in the garden that they experienced this deep and abiding communion with him. And so it is in the garden of Gethsemane that Jesus comes to have this deep moment of intimacy with God, his father. He retires to the garden to weep on his knees before God. Wasn't it also in the garden of Eden that Adam and Eve's faith 
And obedience came under attack by evil. The serpent came and called into question God's goodness and the goodness of his plan for them. And so we see here with Christ wrestling with the powers of darkness grim in the garden, being called to question the goodness of God's plan for him. He is being attacked by the wily serpent. Evil has come in and he is under attack of the powers of darkness and he is being tempted in a way that we probably cannot even imagine to go against and to, to, to do as Adam and Eve did, to go against and to, to, to not believe, to fail to believe in the goodness and the perfection of God's plan. And just as in the garden, men were utter failures. Adam and Eve, under attack by the serpent, where their obedience and faith are tested, where God's goodness and the goodness of his plan was called into question, they failed and they failed miserably. And death was brought. So too in this garden, men are failing all around, are they not? That's what we've been talking about. Judas, failure. The disciples, to a different degree, failure. The religious leaders, failure. What about this, what about this young man in verse 51? Failure. This is probably, most commentators believe, I think they're probably right. We don't really know. It's not that important. Then in verse 51, the young man who flees away naked is probably Mark himself, saying that I was there and I fled also. Failure. Men in the Garden of Eden were utter failures in the face of temptation. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, men in the Garden were utter failures. Notice also in the Garden, in the face of failure, what did men do? It exposed them to be naked, did it not? And they fled and hid in their shame. I think that's the force of the last part of this sort of odd, these last two verses, isn't it? That he ran away naked. That he fled naked and ashamed. Rather bear the shame of public humiliation and nakedness to run and hide then remain with Christ and be faithful. Do you see the parallels between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden? There is one important difference. And it is that where men in the Garden of Eden and in the Garden of Gethsemane were utter failures, Jesus was completely successful. He did not fail. He did not question God's plan or God's goodness. He cried out to God and he said, Father, let this cup of wrath pass from me, but not my will, thine be done. And then as the captors came, he loved them and he willfully gave himself over to them. He was not a failure. He was obedient even to the point of the cross. Brothers and sisters, this passage, I think, is given to us, at least in summary, to teach us these two things. First of all, you're a terrible sinner. The testimony of the Bible is that you're a terrible sinner and that you deserve judgment and wrath. As I said, you should be the greatest sinner that you have ever known. 
and it is encouraging us, and I think it is appropriate for us to do so in light of the fact that we are about to commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, who died in our place instead to take the punishment of our sin upon himself, it encourages us to plumb the depths carefully of the depravity of our own hearts so that we can know our own wickedness, so that we cannot be full of sin, so that we will not be depending upon our own righteousness, but to realize that even if I'm a good person out there, I'm still a hateful, lustful, self-centered sinner on the inside. And that even if those are the only manifestations of my sin, they are worthy of death and condemnation. It encourages us to look and to see that the only one who's Actions are commended in the garden is those of Jesus. So do not depend upon yourself. Do not depend upon any man. Do not depend upon your own actions. Depend upon the actions of Jesus. Because secondly, where we are disobedient, Christ has experienced no such failure. Jesus has perfectly obeyed, and it is his perfect obedience that cost him his life. In fact, it's ironic that in this story, Jesus is obedient in order to make possible forgiveness of our disobedience. Isn't isn't it ironic? That Jesus is obedient to God's plan to be willfully delivered over to the hands of the enemy, putting their ears back on the side of their head, restoring them and going with them as they nail him to a cross and beat him beyond recognition. Isn't that right? He is obedient to all of that so that the people who killed him might be forgiven of their disobedience. Friends, this passage teaches us that we are great sinners, but that if we believe in Jesus by grace through faith, not trusting in our righteousness, but in his, we are great sinners But Jesus is a great Savior. That's what it teaches us. And if we believe by grace through faith in him, we can be a part of his mercy and grace-filled kingdom. And it is a kingdom that is not of this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the truth of this text. Thank you that you teach us about the gospel in it. And thank you that you sent Christ to die for us. My prayer now is that as we come to your table as we gather around it together as we think about the sacrifice that you've made for us Lord I pray that you would help us to be careful to reflect and to plumb the depths of our own depravity that that we would see how wicked we are that, that we would see that we are indeed great sinners but that we would be reminded that Jesus is a great savior if there is a single person here that is trusting in their goodness to get them to heaven I I pray that you would teach them from this text today that they are trusting in vain. That just like the disciples, they will fail. Just like Judas, they will fail. Just like the religious leaders, they will fail. For all have fallen short of your glory and and all all that are are, are under your judgment and deserving of hell. Father, if there's anybody here trusting in their goodness, I pray that you would help them to see not their own goodness, but the goodness of Jesus, his perfect obedience securing life and blessing for them, and then his place on the cross as he bore the punishment they deserved. Lord, may their eyes be opened and may they believe in the gospel today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.